What a blessing it is to be here again before you, bringing the word to the best of my ability. I pray as I'm preaching that you will silently pray for me the whole way through. I thank God for what he has done. As there came a time when the Son of God came to us, right? Fully God, fully man. It's, 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 it's beyond comprehension what has taken place. And I pray that for all those who don't know him as Savior, that the Spirit of God will come upon you and just open your eyes to see and your ears to hear the truth and give your heart to receive the Lord as Savior, not as a, 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 a good moral man or as a, a, a prophet, but as the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. In Genesis chapter 3, God tells the serpent, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the law and the prophets, there are several places that speak of a coming Messiah. So if Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, the Proto-Evangelium, doesn't clearly state that a savior is coming, there are several places elsewhere that do. Uh, right off the bat, we can think of Isaiah chapter seven and verse 14, one of the clearest places that speaks of a coming Messiah. There the word says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, meaning God with us, Matthew 1, Then over in Isaiah chapter nine and verse six, it prophesies, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Mighty Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then, of course, there's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I'll give you the ESV version, but I love the King James version. Uh, it, it's just so much more impactful. But here in the ESV, it says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one for me. One who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. The children of Israel, through centuries of suffering, always looked forward to a coming Messiah who would come and crush their enemies and deliver them from their miserable conditions and their oppression. So when Jesus makes his appearance at John's baptism and John sees him coming from afar and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, every knee should have bowed and every tongue should have confessed Jesus is Lord. But they didn't. They didn't. Why not? Because they expected a powerful presentation of their Messiah. Someone who would come and just crush the enemies, specifically the Roman Empire. Someone who would come riding on a white horse with splendor, pomp, and majesty. Destroying everyone who was against God's people. Setting them up high on Mount Zion. But it didn't happen that way, even though... The scripture said clearly that he would have to suffer first and even die. 
They didn't see it in Isaiah's writings. They didn't see it elsewhere. And we know why. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells why. Verses 13 uh, through 15, uh, Jesus says there that this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their, with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. This is why they couldn't uh, see the scriptures that pointed to Jesus being the Messiah. This is why many of our relatives, our brothers, our unsaved sister, our parents, they can't see what you're saying. They can't see what you see. That there's no other way but Jesus. That there's no other way to escape hell, death. Everything that God promises, they can't see it. They, they think that it's something that I have to do. I have to take part in. And there's a blindness, the same blindness that takes place not only in the Old Testament Jews, the New Testament Jews, the present day Jews, but everybody who does not see. Let us not think that it's because of us. Regeneration precedes faith. The same way that we did not birth ourselves through the canal of our mothers. We had nothing to do with that. Jesus correlates a one-to-one -one correlation. So it is for everybody who was born in the spirit. John 3 and verse 8. My two points for this morning's sermon are Jesus, our eternal priest. And Jesus, the eternal son of God. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Now, when we last looked at this chapter, John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness of Judea, crying out, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as I previously stated, John's uh, baptism was distinguished from all previous forms of washing uh, rituals uh, that were done in Israel because John's baptism uh, wasn't only for those who were affected by some special uncleanness or leprosy or any skin disease or for the Gentile heathen who wanted to join himself to Israel, but John's baptism was for all because all were unclean and all needed to be purified before you can go before before they can go before a holy God. Even the Jewish leaders. Yet when John saw them coming, he speaks as if he was surprised that they would even show up. People who think they need no uh, a reason to be cleansed don't show up to be cleansed. So John said, who warned you? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John's like, I'm out here for the common man. Not for you bunch of snakes whose fathers were a bunch of snakes. You need to be truly repentant before you can take part in this baptism. 
And John's tone seemed to imply that he didn't believe that they could really change. So he warned them of one who would come after him. Uh, one who wasn't going to only judge from outward appearances, but one who knows your heart. And he let them know that if they were unwilling to truly change, the one who was coming after him, the one whose sandals he wasn't worthy to latch it, he's coming with his winnowing fork in his hand. And he's going to separate you like we do when we separate the chaff from the wheat and we burn the chaff. And he's going to burn all of the unbelievers with unquenchable hellfire. And this is where we're going to pick it up this week. In verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3. I'll be reading up until verse 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to, to, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now I'm looking at the clock, and it says 1131. But something happens. There's a disconnect between me and clocks. Right. And so the next time I look, it's like the, it will just jump ahead. Like there's some type of time travel that travel that happens in Woodside. I don't know what you guys have going on before I came, but that 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 clock or clocks period really just leap ahead. But it says 1131. But I'm just going to go and I'm going to begin in prayer and then we're going to pick it up. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. May I use it wisely. I do pray that your spirit would fill all of us. Uh, to overflowing, that we may be sensitive to the word, Lord God, that it may penetrate our hearts and bring change, that it may work in us and that your power will be what we operate by. He would be the one that would guide us in our thoughts, in our actions, and in our words, Lord God. We want to be well-pleasing to you. We want uh, the love of your son to control us, knowing that if one has died, then all have died, and he has die so that we might live for him and no longer for ourselves. Please help us to see your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Point number one, Jesus, the eternal priest. The question inquiring minds want to know is why did the Lord Jesus have to partake in the baptism of John? Verse 13 says, then Jesus came. Matthew, what he does is he gives us the narrative of what happened. But in John's gospel, he gives us the passion that John the Baptist displayed when he saw Jesus coming. And he said, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an announcement. What a proclamation. John is saying, this is he of whom the prophets told us about. Rejoice. 
According to the Bible, Jesus was the sinless son of man and son of God who had no sin to confess, no need of repentance. We can't even ascribe to him that consciousness of evil that weighs upon the hearts of sinful men and drives them to worldly sorrow because even Jesus's thoughts were pure. So why, once again, did he receive the baptism of John. I have four reasons um, I would like to go over. The four, first reason is exactly what Jesus says in, the, in verse 15, to fulfill all righteousness. But what exactly does that mean? He says it in verse 15, so we'll talk more about it when we get to that verse. We, we, we won't waste too much time on that right now. But the second reason Jesus gives uh, for partaking in John's baptism was to fulfill what was written in the scriptures. John the Baptist is the one who was commissioned by God to fulfill Isaiah chapter 40 and verse uh, 3, which promised there will be a voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord to make straight in the desert a highway for our God, for our God. Notice Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, refers to Jesus as God. It's not a new thing. It's not even only a New Testament thing, but it matches what Matthew said in chapter 1, verse 21. He shall be called Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. The third reason Jesus um, received John's baptism was to initiate his prophetic office, even though he came under a different priesthood, he still wanted to fulfill and needed to fulfill the ironic priesthood mandate that called for some type of ritual for you to serve God, a washing ritual for people to see what was going on. So in Exodus chapter 40 in verse 12, God tells Moses, then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. Right. And once again, Jesus wasn't under the ironic uh, priesthood. He came under a better priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek. And I want you to see why. Some of us know why, but I want you to see it for those who don't know why. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7 for a minute. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 12. When Jesus came, there came a, a better priesthood. There was a change in the priesthood. And why was it better? And I believe the writer of Hebrews brings it out clearly for those who don't know or don't understand why. So in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 12, it says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power 
of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Aaron and his sons, I want you to catch this, were anointed and consecrated to the priesthood by water. But Jesus was anointed and consecrated for ministry by the Holy Spirit that we will see came down upon him. The water represented the Spirit of God, Ezekiel 37 and 36. But Jesus was given an eternal priesthood, an eternal unction, as the King James says, giving us confidence that he ever lives and is forever qualified to make intercession for us. How comforting is it to know that Jesus will never go away. He will never lose his qualification to intercede for you and me. And the fourth reason Jesus received John's baptism, I believe, was to demonstrate a symbol of purity and obedience for believers in the New Testament church to follow as an ordinance. He set the example by doing what he commanded his followers to do. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, Jesus told his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, the eternal high priest, was obedient to the will and purpose of God in his baptism and beyond. How much more should we, who call us ourselves followers of Christ, to be obedient to the will and purpose of God in our baptism and beyond? And to hear some people who are uh, uh, converted or have professed Christ, I'll put it like that, speak so casually about whether or not they're going to get baptized. Like, if I do, I do. If I don't, I don't. What's the big deal? Well, Jesus thought it was a big deal. That's why he commanded it to his people, his followers, right before he left. It was one of the things that he stressed. This is what you do. You, you call yourself a follow, follower of me, then you do like I did, as an ordinance, not to be saved. But as you've heard before, the illustration of the wedding ring. The, the wedding ring doesn't make me married, but it's a symbol of love. It's a symbol of commitment. But I believe many people who call themselves followers of Christ don't really know him. Don't really know him. And how can you follow someone that you don't really know? More on that later. But, but going back to Matthew chapter 3, in verse 14, Matthew tells us that John would have prevented Jesus, Jesus from being baptized by him, saying, I, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John recognized Jesus as Messiah, but I don't know if he fully understood what that meant. When we look at John's gospel in chapter 1, verses 31 through 34, those words come forth from him. 
uh, that he didn't truly understand. And so I'm going to read that real quick. John 1, uh, verses 31 through 34. Uh, John says, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove. What a blessing. We're going to touch on that in a little bit, God willing. I saw with my own eyes the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John didn't recognize exactly who Jesus was when he first saw him and said, Behold, the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. But after this proclamation from God the Father, he says, I have witnessed with my own eyes. And I've heard this is the son of God. And he knew that with assurance. With that said, what happened to John when we get to chapter 11 of Matthew, when he asked his own disciples to go and ask him, are you the one or should we look for another? What happened? Such assurance at this point at the baptism but in prison, is he the one or should we look for another? Well, first of all, from this statement, it appears that John had the same expectations of the Messiah as the rest of Israel did that when he came, he would restore the kingdom to Israel because these are God's people. But don't forget conditions sometimes change what we truly believe. We, we, we can pretend as if our conditions don't affect us, but if we're honest, we'll have to admit, yes, our, our conditions do cause us to take a step back sometimes. Now, how far you step back depends on your level of maturity, your level of fellowship, your depth in prayer, you, the time you spend in, in, in the word of God. But when the heat turns up, some of us step back further than we should. Think about his conditions in prison. And according to Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, John was held in the dungeons of Machairus near the Dead Sea. Not a pleasant place to be. And John's thinking to himself, if he's the one, then why are God's people still suffering? Why have we not been restored? Back in the good old days, we were on top. And God says, yes, I'm going to remove you off of this land, but I'm going to send a, a, a Messiah, a, a, the anointed one, to come and deliver you. What happened? So when John's disciples get to Jesus... Jesus says, here, I want you to tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. Because John knows the scriptures. And of men born of a woman in the Old Testament under that covenant, there's no one greater than John. So I want you to tell him what you've seen and what you have 
heard. Tell him the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor receive food and clothing. No, no, that's a different gospel. That's a different gospel. But the gospel here, the good news of Jesus Christ, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And all of these things are spoken of in the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah chapter 35 and Isaiah chapter 61. John would have known, plus the proof he's saying, it's in my life. Go tell John that I am living these things out that were prophesied. Tell him to hold on. He wasn't wrong. He didn't hear God incorrectly. He didn't hear my father misspeak when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We need to stay in prayer. We need to stay in the word of God. And we need fellowship. You have many people who pray. I don't need fellowship. You have many people who read. I don't need to go to church. If you pray without fellowship, you're missing out on the actions of God live. You're missing out on being the blessing that God called you to be, for he has predestined and chosen you before the foundation of the world to what? Be holy and blameless. How do you do that in isolation? Anyone can put forth the fruit of the spirit when there's no pushback. If there's no pushback for anybody who works out, you're not going to get stronger. There's nobody there to challenge you to put extra weights on the bar so that you can see if you're getting stronger. If you stay in isolation, here's what the enemy loves. I can give you the world 24-7. And there's no day of rest. There's no day of recharging. There's no day of hearing the word of God. There's no day of singing the songs of God. It's just the world. 168 hours a week. And God says, I need you to Build up the spirit that I have placed in you, that he may be transformed by the renewing of the mind. Christianity is not a mindless religion. We get the word of God. How do we know it's the word of God? Well, when you're being ordained and they sit you down and they say, okay, here are the 13, 14 topics we're going to go through. The first one is canonicity. Why? Because if canonicity fails, everything else fails. And we have the attested truth of the word of God over decades and over centuries and over millennia. And then you go from there. But if you just get a bunch of facts, if you just get statistics, but you don't fellowship, how are you going to be in unity, in communion? How are you going to be? a part of the ecclesia that God has called you to be. He didn't talk about the eye. He said the body. The body. This is what keeps us. This is how we go forth. So we can understand how John is isolated in the prison and the person who knew scripture, the person who knew his calling, began to say, are you the one? And if it can happen to him, it can happen to us. We have to be ready for battle. We have to be ready by coming together. We pray together. We read together. You study on your own, great. But bless someone with that. That's what it's about. But I, I don't like going online. 
I don't, I don't want to do a Zoom prayer. It's so inconvenient. Jesus, Jesus, this is what he's given us. The word of God, pray without ceasing. If anything should come upon us and it, it, it causes hindrance to worship, does that mean that commandment, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, goes out the window? Okay, you don't have to pray without ceasing now. Does it mean just pray by yourself and it's okay? And I've spent way too much time on this, but I really believe we need that so much in this, this day and age, this period, this season, and for what's to come. It's not, as, it's not as if once 2020 is gone, oh, next year, I can't wait for next year. It's got to be better, better than this. Who said? Who, who made that promise to you? You may get in the middle of next year and wish you were here again. You never know. You never know. Once again, going back to verse 14 of Matthew chapter 3. Notice, Jesus does not deny that John needed to be baptized by him, but he declares he will now be baptized by John in a state of humility and humiliation in order to be set apart for his greater office of Messiah and Redeemer. That was his whole reason for coming to earth in spite of his humiliation, which includes his incarnation, suffering, his death, um, and his burial. He remained faithful to the end, because he loves us to the end. He is our eternal high priest, makes intercession for us. Why? Is it a mechanical thing? No, it's because he loves us. You know, when we think about 1 Peter 4, 8, right? 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, right? What, what, what Peter's doing is he, he gives a command. Love one another. Keep loving one another earnestly. Think about that. If you say keep, you don't have to say earnestly, right? Keep loving one another earnestly. That's a command. And then he tells why. Since love covers a multitude of sins. That is a universal principle throughout the world. That's why you can have a horrific dude living on your block, terrorizing the neighborhood, and the, the, the news puts the mic in front of her face and say he was a good, she says he was a good boy in front of the mother's face. And she can't see no problem with her son. It's just a universal principle. For those who you love, you're not going to be a fault finder. So John says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That's what Jesus does for us. He loves us earnestly. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. When we talk about why do we get baptized, right? Going back to the text. You guys keep taking me off of the text, but going back to the text. Why do we follow Christ? Well, we call ourselves Christians, right? We're, we're little, little, little Christ, little, if, if you want to use that term. We're, we, we imitate him. And over and over, the scriptures tell us, he's your example. Consider him. We have the mind of Christ. Follow him. So what I want to do is I'm going to go over three or four scriptures that speak about that. And I just want to bring out this, this, the importance of following Christ. Right? And like I said, you have to know him. And that comes from uh, reading the word. That comes from not just reading, studying the word. Getting in it. In it. Not just doing your 10-minute reading for the day. There's a place for that. But when we talk about love, 
right? You love him. You love him. Then you have to know him. The first place I want to start out is Hebrews chapter 12. You can follow along if you want. It doesn't matter, but I'm going to uh, get into it. You can look at it later, but I'm going to spend enough time just here, and then I'll move on. But this is so good. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Why should we follow Christ? A couple of benefits. Number one, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Doing what? Looking to Jesus. Doing what? Looking to Jesus. Why? Because he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what do we do? We consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. What is it to consider Jesus? Well, I'm going to ponder this guy who died for me. Oh, he's more than just a guy who died for me. He's more than just the son of the man upstairs. He's God. I'm going to consider that. And what did he do? He endured from sinners hostility. Against himself. Now notice the construct of this sentence. It does not speak another truth. It doesn't speak it from the other view that sinners came towards him. But it says it was against him. What's the difference? What, Peter, what the writer is doing is he's, 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 he's showing you the other angle that Jesus absorbed from sinners. Hostility and anger. He absorbed the, 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 the evil that came against him. Yes, they went towards him, but that's not the view that God wants you to see right here by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the writer of Hebrews. But he, he says, whatever it took for our sake, he absorbed it. And, and, and he says, think about it, consider, meditate, ponder what he did for you. Is your environment hostile? Absorb it. Because we want to follow him, right? We don't want to retaliate. We don't want to uh, uh, bring evil against those who bring evil against us. And it's so hard. But it's Matthew chapter 5. Absorb it. Absorb it. And when we look at Ephesians 5 and it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Think about it. If you're going to love your wife as Christ loved the church, wherever you see in the Bible God acting towards his bride, that's what a husband is called to do for his wife. Right? When, 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 when the wife comes home after a hard day, or if she's been home and she's had a hard day with those little rug rats who don't listen, and she wants to vent, we absorb it. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He's taking it all. That's what we as husbands are to do. We as Christians, the environment is hostile. Absorb it. Look like Christ. You don't compromise your holiness. You don't speak like the world. You don't retaliate like your co-worker. If your husband or wife is coming against you with hostility, husbands first, absorb it. That is your job. That's 1 Peter 3, 7. Understand her, know her. God has given you that charge and absorb it. When the hostility comes, we're like Christ. 
We're like Christ. Your neighbor, hostility, anger, throwing trash and cigarette butts on your yard. It doesn't mean you can't address him and speak to him and say this is wrong. But if he wants to escalate with ungodliness, you have to escalate with holiness. Now, how do you do that? James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach and it shall be given. Do you believe it? How many of us actually ask God for wisdom? Or do we do like we've always done, try to figure it out? Or call a friend? How many ask God? Who gives all men wisdom liberally. Thank God for that. Then there's the uh, Philippians 2. We read a part of it today. A good part of it. I try to shorten it up. Because it's already 12 o'clock. You have got to be kidding me. <laughs> In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 uh, through 8, Paul writes... Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself. Who do we think we are? He humbled himself by, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The humble mindset that Christ had and still has, we should have. Right? Right? Why do we think so highly of, our, of ourselves? I, no, I don't have time for him. I, no, she's, she's a nuisance. No, um, I'm, I've been in the church so long. How could they ask me to do fill in the blank? Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Translation. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, the life of Jesus should be manifested in your body. He has to come forth. People have to see it in you. People have to know this guy's different. This one is not gossiping. They're not slandering any political candidate. Something is different. Don't you get mad? God is in control. God, God is the one who calls kings and presidents. God has a, a higher purpose than we could ever see. I'm trusting him. Slander is ungodly. Slander is ungodly. Then there's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It tells us why. As we put all these things together. When it says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree to one degree of glory to another. For, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If you are truly a follower of Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ. And if you have the Spirit of Christ, you are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. One degree of glory to the next. Until you see Jesus face to face. Glory to God. This comes from the Lord. My early years as a Christian, I look totally different than I do now. 
I'm not saying that I arrived. I'm far from it. But to give you an, an, an example, um, last year or a couple of years ago, I asked my wife. We've been together almost 30 years. I said, I said, I said, um, do you think I have more patience now than I did when we first uh, met or when I was first converted? I put it like that. Um, yes, yeah, that's, that's what I said. And before I can get to the A in patience, she said, yes, yes. And it's like a, a hit to my ego. But praise God, because what he's doing and what he has been doing, and I know he will continue to do, is take me from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory to the next degree of glory until I see Christ. Praise his holy name. I give him all the glory for that. Back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. If someone was trying to figure out whether baptism should be done by sprinkling or immersion, but they call themselves a follower of Christ, I believe this verse is one of a few places that clearly says we should be baptized by immersion. Besides the fact that the word baptizo means to dip, to dip, it, it literally means uh, to dip or immerse. And we see here, that after Jesus was baptized, he came up from the water, a great deal of water. And I like the way John Gill, uh, the English pastor and theologian, put it. Um, concerning this verse, he said, One would be at a loss at first sight for a reason why the evangelist should relate this circumstance. For after the ordinance was administered, why should he stay in the water? What should he do there? Everyone would naturally and reasonably conclude without the mention of such a circumstance that as soon as his baptism was over, he would immediately come up, come up out of the water. However, we learn from this that since it is said that he came up out of the water, he must first have gone down into it, must have been in it and was baptized in it. A circumstance strongly in favor of baptism by immersion. For that Christ should go down into the river more or less deep to the ankles or up to the knees in order that John should sprinkle water on his face or pour it on his head. As is ridiculously represented in the prince can hardly obtain any credit with persons of thought and sense. That's rather blunt, but he's right. Now, after Jesus came up from being immersed, something unique, unique take place, takes place. Not just the heavens opening up and not just the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus, but John was somehow able to see the Holy Spirit. Right. The second half of verse 16 says, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor Mike, how do we know that he isn't referring to Jesus? So the, seeing the Holy Spirit come upon him. Good question. Not a great question, but a good question. We know that the he in this verse, at the, almost the beginning of this verse, is not referring to Jesus because the word him at the end of the verse is referring to Jesus. So that the he and the him cannot be the same person. Even plainer is John's gospel that I read, chapter 1, verses 31 through 34. It names John the Baptist as the one who saw the Spirit descending on the Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us to point number two. Jesus, the eternal son 
of God. Because John did not only, uh, John the Baptist did not only see the Holy Spirit descend on Christ, but he heard the voice from heaven uh, say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Like I said before, what a statement that we get from the almighty God, the Father. What further validation is needed that Jesus is the only begotten, unique son of God? But how does the majority of the world view Jesus? And I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Time is going. I know you're hungry, but I, I pray you're hungry for the word. But I'm not going to keep going and going on and on. But one group outside of religion, you have a group that says, well, he was a great teacher. But he was entirely human. And Christians go way too far. They're using all kind of manipulative tactics to make you think he did this, that, and the other. But he was just a great teacher. Uh, then you have others who talk about the goodness of Christ. He was a good moral man who was sincere to the end and had enough conviction and courage to die for what he believed in. Then there's another group who sees Christ as liberator, who came to set the poor and free. The, 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 the poor and oppressed free from their earthly oppression, oppression and his followers are to do likewise. If that's the call of Christians from Christ, then the church has failed miserably because for almost 1900 years, the average Christian has been poor and oppressed. This is not our home. In, Amer in, in the West, we have a different idea of Christianity, but if you look historically, the average Christian was poor and oppressed, which lines up with scripture. One place, Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It's a part of the calling. It's a part of the calling. If you're going to separate yourself from God for holiness and not take shortcuts, if you're going to say that's wrong, you're going to feel some persecution, some pushback, some loneliness. It's going to come when people that you have loved for years say, I can't deal with you no more. You're too narrow-minded. So be it. So be it. What about those inside religion? How many different views are there within our religion itself? Too many to count. It's growing every day. But some major ones, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is a God, a created being, who is also Michael the Archangel. And he was the son of God, yes, but he was not equal to God the Father, so they gave him a small g in their corrupted um, I hate to call it a Bible, but the, the, the New World Translation, if you look through it, where Jesus is mentioned as God, it's a small g, right? So that they have another God besides the Father God, even though their very scripture, where it says, you are my witnesses, Isaiah 43, it says, before me also, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And then when we look at the Mormons, they also believe that Jesus is a God, but they also believe, they take it a step further, that anyone can become a God. So that they are actually like a spiritual Oprah, right? You know how that works, right? right? You can be a God, and you can be a God. 
Everybody can be a God. But that's not what the word of God says. Jesus is the unique son of God. And although the Muslim Bible, the Quran, speaks highly of Christ and presents miraculous aspects of his life, they also categorically deny the central teachings of Christianity that Jesus was God and the Son of God, and they deny his death on the cross and his resurrections. There's way too many false beliefs to talk about. And I would love to take this time to talk about one is Pentecostalism, but I can't address it um, that much. Uh, so I just want to give you an illustration of what it's like to have the wrong God, to spend a, a, a most of your life or even a small part of your life following the wrong God, not believing the word of God, not believing people that he sends to you to show you clear scripture that faith alone in Christ alone is the only way to be saved. By grace alone, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. It is a work of God. And if that's not your Jesus, there's a problem. I remember listening to a pastor, uh, maybe a couple of months now, and he was explaining his trip to New York and how it was a nightmare because it started off wrong. He didn't go into the rest of the trip, but the beginning of the trip was horrific. He's lugging this, this I don't know, 400-pound suitcase, and he goes into um, some hotel in Midtown Manhattan, I won't call the name, but it's horrific, and so he checks out, and he goes into another hotel. When he gets to the uh, other hotel, the check-in, it seems to go by smoothly, right? And he gets to his room. He can't find, first of all, he can't find one of those luggage carts because it's only the, even though it's only one suitcase, it's heavy. He just needs, he's been lugging it he, from blocks away, lugging it to the hotel. He, puts, he can't find a, car, uh, uh, a cart, and so he's carrying it, carrying it, long line at the hotel. He's there, they give him the key card. He goes to his room, and the key card does not work. And he's frustrated because he has to go all the way back down. He's not going to leave his luggage in a hotel in the hallway in Manhattan. So he lugs it back down. There's another line. He gets on the line. He finally gets to the front, and he says, I am tired. I am tired, and I just want to lay down, but you, I don't know what, what you're doing, but your key card it doesn't work. I can't get in my room. And so the clerk says, I'm sorry, sir. And he takes the key card and looks at it and says, wait a minute. It looks like ours, but this is not ours. This, this is to another hotel. And so, so the pastor feels shame because of the way he took it out on this guy, you know, his tiredness and everything of lugging this, 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 this luggage through Manhattan. And so he gets the right uh, 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 key card. He goes into the room. But think about the correlation of that simple illustration with living a life here, carrying all the weight of your sins, not knowing if you're saved, if you've done enough, if you will be received into heaven. And then you get there and you have the wrong Jesus. You have the wrong God. You thought he was a minor Jesus, was a minor God, I should say, with a small g. Not trusting in the fact that he's the creator of the universe. And without him, there's nothing made that was made. That he was there from the beginning with God. 
and your whole eternity lies on him, on him. It's not a small mistake to make. It's not a simple thing. It's, it's not a, a second or third order issue. It's number one. Who's Jesus? That's the question. You want to know if your family member who comes to you and, say, and says, I've been saved. The question is, who's Jesus? Your co-worker says, I believe. Who's Jesus? That's the question. That's the dividing line. It's not a small issue. Some of us here, we believe that we know God and are known by him intimately. But our behavior doesn't reflect that. Our behavior isn't as if we love him with our whole hearts, as if we have a relationship uh, with him. But I pray that each one of you who believes you know God and are known by God as his child, that you will lay your life down for him. That 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 would happen as I stated partially before. That the love of Christ would control you. Knowing that one has died for all. And all have died. So that now we may live for him. Who died for us. And no longer for ourselves. The almighty judge of the earth. We want him to receive us with joy. Not because we did everything that the law book said we should do, but because we trusted in Christ alone who did do everything the law book said needed to be done. We trusted in him. That's the only way salvation comes. So repent and believe. Turn from your sins and be healed. Behold, the Lamb has come. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for salvation. We thank you that you have sent your Son. That all who believe will be saved, will be delivered, will be changed, will have a love that continues to grow for you and for him by your spirit. Father, we want to be faithful. We want to bless your people with our lives, knowing that you are a God who has ordained salvation for those who believe in you. And that cannot be changed. You have given us life, Lord God. We have not uh, been born of ourselves, but you have borne us. You have given us birth. As we have no say in our physical birth, we also have no say in our spiritual birth. We were dead, but you gave us life. You gave us ears to hear so that when we heard the gospel at the appointed time, we recognized it as being true and we believed. You gave us eyes to see the truth so that when it came our way, this time, even though we heard it before, this time, even though we've seen what it looks like, this time we believed. And I thank you for that, Lord God. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.